Chapter 5 The first thing Obe did when the afterlife antenna came around again was to take him out into May's empty garden. It was a pitiful sight, the three of us in our overcoats and boots, standing among the dead stalks of winter, hoping for a sign of life from the woman who once had kept everything alive on that soil, including some of us. I really didn't expect May to show up, but Obe's enthusiasm was so desperate so sincere in its belief in miracles that a part of me held out just a little hope that she might fly her soft spirit over us and come gently into our mist. May had never let us down when she was alive. She'd never not shown up when she was supposed to be somewhere, and it was the memory of her reliableness, I guess, that fueled our wide-eyed optimism. What Cletus thought about it all I can't imagine, for once he was quiet— let Obe do all the talking and explaining, and, like a little child, let himself be led among the dead beans and broccoli toward the heart of a woman he never even met. Obe must have thought that by talking about May there in that place, painting her before Cletus's ignorant eyes, he could flood the garden with the vibrations needed to draw her to us, like that old joke of talking about someone till his ears burn. So there we stood, hands dug deep in our pockets, Obe looking at Cletus, Cletus looking up at the sky, and me looking down at the ground. Obe talked about what a good wife May was, and all the sweet things she'd done for him, for us, while she was living. I was kind of surprised at the things Obe picked to talk about. I figured he'd choose the big ones, like her secretly saving up for three years in a row to buy him that expensive plane saw he was coveting over at Sears, or the year she stayed awake, Thirty-two hours straight, when fever from the chickenpox had me full of delirium, so sick I wanted to die. But these heroic gestures of hers were ignored, and he chose instead to mention the simpler things, how she had rubbed down his ailing knee with Bengay every single night, not missing a one, so he might be able to stand on that leg when he got out of bed the next morning. The way she had called me through the window when I was little, and playing on the swing set, saying, Summer, honey, you are the best little girl I ever did know. Then going back to whatever she was doing. I had not remembered this about her until that moment. And a series of other sweetnesses that Obe had obviously cradled in his memory, looking for some way to bring them to life. Cletus watched the sky and glanced at Obe now and then, nodding his head to let Obe know he was listening. Cletus was wearing his hat with a fake fur ear flaps, and once I got a crazy urge to giggle when I thought of those flaps flapping and Cletus rising up like Charlie Brown Snoopy and flying across the garden and away. But his hat behaved itself, and he stood patiently, allowing Ope to say all he needed to say. It almost felt like a funeral, like we'd just buried some beloved pet in the cold ground of the garden. And in some ways, it was more comfort more real to me than May's true funeral had been. Seems once people bring in outsiders who make a career of bereavement, undertakers, preachers, their grieving gets turned into a kind of system, like the way everybody lines up the same way to go into a movie or sits the same way in a doctor's office. All Obe and me wanted to do when we lost May was to hold on to each other and wail in that trailer for days and days. But we never got the chance, because... Just like there are certain ways people expect you to get married, or go to church, or raise kids, there are certain ways people expect you to grieve. When May died, 
Obami had to talk business with the funeral parlor, religion with the preacher, and make small talk with dozens of relatives and people we hardly ever seen before. We had to eat their food. We had to let them hug us. We had to see them watching our faces for any sign of a nervous breakdown. May's funeral turned open me into temporary sort of socialites, and we never really got the chance to howl and pull our hair out. People wanted us to grieve proper. So standing there in that bleak and empty garden, listening to Obe make May alive again, that seemed to fix something in me that needed fixing ever since the funeral. And in the oddest way, Cletus became what we'd needed all along from the undertaker and preacher and visiting relatives. He became the perfect consoler because he listened to every word Obe said and kept his fat mouth shut. Cletus had some gifts. I was learning this bit by bit, and knowing when to talk and when not to was turning out to be one of them. Obe finally drained his cup of praises to May and grew still. His eyes looked with Cletus's to the sky, and I couldn't keep mine from following. Nothing but a black crow passed overhead, and no sound but Obe's heavy breathing and an occasional snort from Cletus, whose nose had started to run. Neither Cletus nor I was willing to make a move until Obe did. We watched him turn his head this way and that, like adjusting the dial on a radio. Then, finally, he gave a great sigh, and we knew May had not come to him. He shook his head wearily and walked away from us toward the empty trailer. We watched him go over the hill and through the front door. Then we looked at each other, and we, too, let out our own sighs of disappointment. He's going to make himself sick or crazy. One... I said to Cletus, suddenly feeling a big lump in my throat, a wetness in my eyes. Cletus shrugged his shoulders and gave me one of his strange smiles. At least he has something to do, he said. Gets him out of bed in the mornings. I shook my head and remained silent. I didn't want Cletus to know the pain this caused me, that I wasn't enough to bring Obe to life each day, that it wasn't enough he had me left to still love. Cletus looked at me. You really don't believe he feels her, do you? He said, almost like he was accusing me of something. I gave him a sharp look. Why, what's it to you whether I believe it or don't? Cletus shrugged his shoulders. Ain't nothing to me. I just figured you to have more imagination than that, you being a writer and all. I'm not any writer. Oh, the heck you're not. Cletus answered with a look of total impatience. Cletus, don't preach at me. I was beginning to think I might yell or cry, and I didn't want to do either. What I wanted was for him to stop pushing at me. He looked off towards the woods. That's probably what she gave him, he said matter-of-factly. I straightened up. What? What did she give him? Cletus squatted down to pick out a dry broccoli leaf. Well, you know Obe won't just make a whirlywig from something he can't understand. He don't carve out little doggies and kitties because he don't care about things concrete. Obe's not making yard decorations. He's making art. I can understand why he never put the gigs out in the yard. He never meant to entertain the neighbors. I just figured May gave him permission to have some imagination. Cletus looked up at my face. Obe's got vision, Summer, just like you, except you're always fighting yours off. And when Cletus said that, I felt like I couldn't ever win anymore. I couldn't ever come out on top of anything in this life. I couldn't even remember 
what it was about Cletus I used to hate so much. I couldn't even stay ahead of him. I turned and walked away. I felt lost. I might as well have been spinning in a round metal tub in a twenty-foot wall of water, washing down off that mountain, just lost forever in deep water. Part 2. Set Free. Chapter 6. I did not stay lost for long. Guidance came to me in the form of a greasy-haired lunatic. And now, desperate, I am passing him the torch, hoping he can lead us out of this infernal darkness, this place none of us can anymore call home. The day after May failed to make her appearance, the day after Obe trudged miserably one way while I trudged miserably the other, was what they called in English class the denouement. All our stories took a sharp turn because of what happened that next day. We were put on a different road, and, like Dorothy, the scarecrow, and the cowardly lion, we are all hoping that there really is a Wizard of Oz, and that in the Emerald City we will find what it is Obe needs to finally rest his soul. The day after May didn't come to us, Obe didn't get out of bed. He didn't get me up either, and from a bad dream I woke with a start, knowing things were wrong, knowing I had missed something vitally important. Among these, of course, was the school bus. It was Monday, and Obe should have called me out of bed at 5.30, but he didn't, and when I finally woke at 7 o'clock, it was too late to set the day straight. But maybe God intended for me to sleep in that morning, needed me to stay home, as he counted on all of the day's events spreading out just like he'd planned. I jumped from bed and hurried down the hall to Obe's room at the other end of the trailer. I knocked on his door. Obe! No answer came. Obe, you awake? My breathing was tight, just like my nerves, as I wondered what I'd find inside that room. I had been dreading Obe's death for so long that, in my mind, I practically had the coffin picked out and which tie he'd wear. I thought this morning might be the one for the truly final decisions. Summer, I heard him say in a weak voice. My heart lifted a little at the sound of his voice, and I opened the door a crack. There still wasn't much light outside, so all I could see of him was his thin, bony silhouette upright in the bed. I could feel the fear in him. Obe, are you okay? I went over and reached out to touch his arm. Are you sick, Obe? His hand came up and covered mine. He was shaking his head, patting my fingers again and again. I wasn't sure what to do. I sat down on the edge of the bed. His face was gray in the light, and he looked to me like some poor victim of a medical experiment. What is it, Obe? I asked, and in the gray cast, that fog in which we both sat, I could see and feel that tears were rolling down his face. I must have overslept, he whispered, and he knew, as well as I, that he had never, not any day of his life, overslept. He was as trustworthy as the sun in this. I took my hand from underneath his and stroked his shoulder. It's all right, Obe, I told him. Happens to everybody, I said, knowing full well it didn't. You go on back to sleep if you want, Obe. I'll put some coffee on the stove. 
and I'll fix you some eggs and cocoa when you get up. Obe didn't protest. He was humiliated, I knew, and wanted to be left alone. I understood that feeling. Once when I was in fourth grade, our teacher had made us write descriptions of each other. She said she would read them aloud and we would try to guess who was being described. One of, one of the descriptions she read was of a girl who sounded to me like some sad welfare case in the sorry way her clothes and hair were described. But everyone in the class seemed to know right away who it was. Only the girl herself was stumped. That was about the only time in my life I didn't put two and two together, and once I realized the writer had in fact been describing me, or what she saw when she looked at me, all I wanted was to be home, safe with May and Obe, never to leave the haven of my own room again. But I had to sit among others for the rest of the school day, exposed. I understood Obe's need to be alone. I went out to the kitchen and called the junior high to let them know I wouldn't be coming any time that day, and I got a pot of coffee brewing. I thought about old number 56, knew it would have sat idling a few extra minutes this morning, waiting to see if I was going to come hauling it over the hill with my coat half on and my book sliding every which way. It was a nice feeling, the knowing that I was always expected. I sat down with my coffee and wished I had a medical book in the house, something that might give me some clues on how to help Obe. But all we had was Aunt May's worn-out copy of Dr. Spock's Baby and Child Care, which she had reached for every time I threw up as a child. I didn't figure on Dr. Spock giving me any good advice about old men who couldn't go on without their wives. I watched the Today Show a while. I even had this crazy hope that maybe I'd be lucky. And Dr. Art Ulane would talk about that very thing, about grieving old men who were starting to oversleep in the mornings. But the subject was acne, which I was sorry Cletus wasn't around to hear, and I was left with nothing to go on except my own common sense. And my own common sense was sending me a pretty strong message, one that at first I didn't want to listen to because it scared me so. But by 9 a.m., I had pretty much come to the conclusion that Obe had overslept, not because he had made a mistake, but because deep down he was finished. Finished waiting for May, and finished waiting for all his grief to dry up and leave him, and maybe, in a way, finished with me. Presently, Obe did come shuffling out of his room. He was in his pajamas, hadn't even bothered to get dressed and this sent four alarm chills running through my whole body. He looked ready for the nursing home or the grave. My heart was breaking in half, and at the same time, I was so mad at him, I wanted to kill him. What was it going to take to shake some life back into him? Obe drank his cocoa and looked out the front window while I got the table spread. It was nearly ten o'clock, and I was starving. I was used to having breakfast at 5.45. May had always made a big hot breakfast for me. Since she died, Obe had given me cereal and toast. Today, I was cooking for myself. Once we got settled down and began to eat, though, things relaxed a little between us, and we began to talk. I searched for topics that had generally interested both of us before, like whether or not we should get a dog, and did we think that young guy at the hardware was drunk or just had a speech problem, 
and maybe this spring we ought to buy one of those weed eaters so we could clean out that mess around the old Chevy. But right in the middle of my little speech on the virtues of weed eaters, Ob pushed away his half-eaten breakfast and gave me a sad, long look. I shut up. Summer, he said. I don't know that I can do it. Do what, Ob? He shook his head. Those tears were coming back to him. I never was no hand at housekeeping. Maybe there was a time I could have learned. When it's too late for me now, and I don't know that I can do all that needs to be done to keep this place running. I knew he meant me. He meant keep me running. The trailer could take care of itself. He wasn't so sure I could. I can take care of myself, Obe. He swallowed hard and waited a minute to collect his voice. May wouldn't have wanted you caring for yourself, child. We brought you to this place to raise you up with our own hands. And she wouldn't want you having to look to your own needs. She wanted you to have somebody right here seeing after you. I don't know that this old man is going to be of any use to you, Summer. I'm not doing so good since she passed on. In a strange and unexpected way, Ope saying this exhilarated me. I'm not sure what it was but it had something to do with him still being rooted enough to things, to know when they were going wrong. If Obe had overslept and sat around in his pajamas all day and made excuses for it, or worse, thought nothing of it at all, that would have made me ready to give up on him. But he knew he wasn't doing so good, and he still knew enough to be ashamed. That gave me some hope. Obe... I reached for his hand. Maybe you could start a new batch of gigs. Maybe you need to get busy on something a while till some more time passes. I can take care of things. I can run this place till you're better. He gave me a weary smile. There's nothing in this old head of mine to make a gig from, sweetheart. Seems all it's filled up with is talking to May and thinking about her dying on us. I keep running through that garden over and over, finding the poor thing and feeling my heart freeze up just like it did that day. It's over and done with, except in my head, but I just can't get it out of there. I got no gigs in me anymore. The only vision I've got is of my poor old May, and seems there's nobody nor nothing can distract me from that, and I ain't even so sure... I want to be distracted. I got to keep her with me somehow. I nodded my head and stroked his arm. What could I say to him? He was telling the pure truth I knew, and I didn't have any answers for either of us. All I could do was fix him another cup of cocoa and pour me another cup of coffee and just sit. Then, at 3.25... Cletus Underwood and his suitcase showed up at the front door, and we finally got some directions to Oz. Chapter 7 It's called a what kind of church? Obe said as he looked over Cletus's shoulder at the newspaper clipping that had been pulled from the famous suitcase. Spiritualist, Cletus said. The Spiritualist Church of Glen Meadows. It says right here, over in Putnam County. The two of them sat down on the couch while I took the lazy boy, wondering to myself whether Cletus wasn't just some alien pretending to be a human life. 
Surely he knew he'd never get Ob and me inside of a church, even if it served a thousand different kinds of donuts. Ob took the clipping from Cletus's hand while Cletus went on talking. The pastor there, it says, can communicate with the dead. Says that's what the whole church is about, making connections between this world and the other side. This isn't any ordinary church. I clipped this out of the paper last year because I love that picture of her. The Reverend Miriam B. Young. Small medium at large. Don't you just love that? I'd dearly love to write newspaper titles when I'm grown. Anyway, some call her the Bat Lady because she keeps bats as pets. Others call her the White Lady because she only wears white. But I'm calling her the Just-In-Time Lady because that's what she is. She showed up here in my suitcase just in time to lead us to May. Ob didn't smile back. I knew he was thinking, thinking of a kind way to let Cletus know that this new idea ranked right up there with the one that gave us Cheese Whiz, and that instead of heading to Putnam County, Cletus had better get himself checked into the Pineville Sanitarium. How long a drive you figure it is over to that part of Putnam County? Ob finally said, Ob! I shouted. Are you crazy? We can't go to Putnam County looking for the Batwoman. Ob and Cletus just stared at me. How come we can't? Ob asked. You got something better to do for school break? School break? We're going to spend school break in Putnam County in some spiritual church? Spiritualist, Cletus corrected. Hell, why not? Ob said, looking at Cletus with a grin. We just might learn us a thing or two. I saw that grin on his face, that glint in his eyes, and I knew that Ob had suddenly found himself a reason to get out of bed on time in the mornings, at least for a little while longer. The three of us might look like complete pure fools tracking down this preacher lady and her bats, but if it kept Ob grinning and chasing after some hope, I knew I'd have to be willing to follow him. Three hours. Cletus said. Say what? I figure on three hours to get there. Cletus continued. I already looked at the map. It's an easy drive. We can take the turnpike almost all the way in. Maybe we can even stop in Charleston and look at the Capitol on our way back. I've not ever been to the Capitol. Never been anywhere, really, except the middle part of Raleigh County and the middle part of Fayette County. Hard to be a renaissance man when you can't get your nose any further than that. A what kind of man? Asked Ob. Renaissance. Learned it in history. Back in Europe, there were these men who were real well-rounded. You know, they could paint, play music, write poems. They could talk science and philosophy. Knew a lot about a lot. Folks called them renaissance men. Cletus got this cocky little look on his face. I'm training to be one of them. He said with a big grin, Deepwater needs itself some renaissance men. Ha! Ob laughed and slapped Cletus on the knee. After our little trip, you might be calling yourself a rent-a-seance man. Both of them burst out laughing while I just sighed and went to the refrigerator to pull out some Cokes. I could tell Cletus was going to be with us for a while. He hung on till supper time. Then, when it became apparent Ob and I were probably going to rely on peanut butter to pull us through, he finally got the notion to go on home. 
Cletus never once asked why I wasn't at school that day, never once commented on Obe being in his pajamas. He sure had some gifts. May would have liked him. She would have said he was full of wonders, same as Obe. May always liked the weird ones best, the ones you couldn't peg right off. She must be loving it up in heaven, where I figure everybody must just let loose. That's got to be at least one of the benefits of heaven, never having to act normal again. Obe and I agreed to meet Cletus at his house on Saturday, so Obe could meet Cletus's parents and get the go-ahead for Cletus to come with us to Putnam County next week. Pretty soon, we'll all be in Obe's Valiant, traveling like wise men to Bethlehem, looking for that star in the sky that might point us to May. I'm afraid. Already I've lost many things, important things, and I don't want to lose more in Putnam County. Cletus seems always to live full of hope and confidence. He thinks he's found the answer for Obe, and now all we have to do is get ourselves heading out the turnpike to pick it up. But I've got too much to lose if this bat lady turns out to be a hoax. If May decides not to fly along with us, if she doesn't show up in Putnam County and say whatever it is Obe needs for life to hear, then I figure there'll be no use us returning to our home in deep water because we will have waded out too far, out past the point of no return, too far to ever make it home again. Cletus had sure better be right about this. Chapter 8 May liked bats. Maybe it was some kind of a sign that we were headed for another woman who liked them too. We used to get bats in the trailer, nearly one a week when it was hibernating time. I'd wake in the night and hear that cottony flapping coming from the living room. I'd lie there a few minutes, enjoying in a way the strangeness of my situation. Then I'd groan and drag myself up to get Obe and May. I had to walk through the living room to do it, and with the low ceiling of the trailer, the bat and I would be practically eye to eye. But I was never afraid. I was being raised by one person who liked these creatures and another who tolerated them. I had no reason to fear bats, and as I grew and discovered how many people are deathly afraid of them, it made me wonder about fear, whether it all just starts with the people who raise us. May would be the first out, standing in the living room and talking to the distressed bat. Poor little feller, must be scared to death. You never meant to come into this old trailer. Obe would stagger out behind, rubbing his eyes and waking himself up with a few choice swear words. Obe always said cussing was like taking a strong drink of whiskey. It thawed him out and got his engine running again. Then Obe and May would take turns trying to throw a blanket over the bat while it swooped around their heads, and pretty soon one of them would be carrying the blanket outside and watching the soft black thing fly off into the night. Once, May injured a bat by mistake, crushing it when she opened a window it had roosted on. She thought she might save it. She put it in a box full of warm towels, and inside the box she placed a little saucer of banana pieces and some dead grubs. Obe had dug out of the backyard for it. The three of us took turns the following week, looking in on it, seeing whether it had eaten anything. Once, when I checked, 
it had pulled itself over to the saucer and, with what seemed to be the last bit of strength it had, was licking one of the pieces of banana. The bat was so small and lovely, a little animal with wings, and I wanted it to live. But the next morning it was dead, and we buried it in May's garden. Finally, Obe had somebody check the trailer, and when we learned that the bats were flying in through the heating ducts, Obe covered these with wire, and we no longer set free or buried any lost and lonely bats. Obe got out of bed on time the rest of the week, and as I ate my cereal and drank my coffee before heading off to school, he would sit at the kitchen table, studying the road atlas he'd spread open or thumb through the AAA travel guide to West Virginia and Ohio. I didn't ask him what he was looking for. I had a feeling it wasn't anything you could find on a map. Then, Saturday morning rolled around, and we found ourselves shivering on Cletus Underwood's front porch, knocking to be let in. Cletus's house was tiny and brown, not much bigger than some people's garages. It sat far back from the road in a clump of pine trees, and to a child might have been the house where Goldilocks met the three bears. In the cold of February, it looked brittle and tight, and when I saw it, I had a strange urge to throw a blanket over it and warm its insides. Obe said nothing about the place, except that he used to go fishing with a man who lived in it years ago. He said it was a good little house. The front door opened to us, and standing there was Cletus, and I knew in an instant that this was not the same boy who had been coming to us with his battered old suitcase all these weeks. This was a different boy, and I knew, even before I set one foot inside his house, that here in this place, he was a much-loved boy. It's funny how you can know something like that right away, how you can see in someone's face that he feels completely safe and full of power and love, and suddenly things between you become so easy. Cletus was home, and he didn't need to be crazy at all. He smiled his big smile, and for the first time in my life, I was glad to see him. Come on in, folks, he said, moving out of our way and motioning us inside. Behind him stood his parents. I knew right off that they were shy and unused to company, and they were older than I ever expected. Mrs. Underwood looked to be made of dried-out apples. She was small and tight and dry, just like our house, but with a shine that attracted me. She shook my hand, and her thin, cool fingers felt like twigs that could be snapped in a minute. I had a pang of fear that she might die soon. I seemed destined to be surrounded by people on their way out. "'Well, hello, Summer. It's good to finally meet you,' she said softly. "'Thanks. You too,' I answered, feeling awkward before her good manners." Mr. Underwood was shaking Obe's hand and laughing at something Obe had said. Leave it to Obe to walk right in and have the house laughing. I loved Mr. Underwood from the minute I set eyes on him. He was a stooped-over little man with a long gray beard. A little elf. Even his cheeks were rosy. And instead of shaking my hand, he put his arm around me and gave me a squeeze and said, We were wondering when that boy of ours was going to bring you on over here. We've been asking him since Christmas. 
I stood there in his father's arms and looked to Cletus in embarrassment. I could guess now why Cletus had never had me to his house before. I thought all along that it had something to do with his parents, that he was hiding them from me, maybe ashamed of them in some way. Now, meeting these sweet people, I knew right away it wasn't them Cletus was ashamed of. It was me. Ashamed of me and my indifference to him. Afraid to let his parents see the way I barely tolerated their strange son. Ashamed of the difference between their adoration of him and my disgust. I had not been in that house for five minutes yet, and already I'd learned so much. We all sat down in the little living room. Mrs. Underwood brought out an extra chair from the kitchen. Never one to mess around. Obe got right to the point. Well, you know, we was wondering if you might let us take your boy Cletus along on our little trip next week. The Underwoods both nodded and said nothing, waiting for Obe to fill in the details, which I figured he had come prepared to do. I waited to see how he would handle it. He went on. See, I lost my wife last August, and since then, Summer, she's had a rough time of it. He looked at me and shook his head sadly. Poor little thing. She just can't figure out what to do with herself when she's got some time on her hands. So, I was thinking she'd get a lot out of this little sightseeing trip. I looked at Obe in astonishment. He avoided my eyes and continued. I thought we'd go on over to Putnam County to visit an old friend of mine. At least he's got that part right, I thought. And then go on into Charleston to see the capital. That's where your boy comes in. Mrs. Underwood gave Cletus an affectionate look. As you all know by now, Obe continued, Cletus is a boy just full of curiosity about the world, and I reckoned maybe he'd like a chance to see the capital too. And him and Summer, they get on real good. They're practically best friends. And it'd be a help to her to have him along, take her mind off things. Obe sent me a look of deepest sympathy as I gaped back at him, while Mr. and Mrs. Underwood turned their understanding faces upon mine, probably searching for the right words to say to the poor lost child sitting before them. Cletus has simply stared, with his mouth hanging, ever since Obe passed the poor little thing part. It was one of those rare occasions when he was too flabbergasted to speak. Like me, Cletus must have expected Obe would explain about the Bat Lady, about our real reason for going to Putnam County. He didn't know, though, how slick Obe could be. And now, I had a hunch Cletus's admiration for Obe had just shot up about ten points. Mr. Underwood was the first to reply. Why, sure, Obe. If you don't think Cletus will be too much trouble to you. I know Cletus has been wanting to travel some, see new things, but I've got down in my back, and Margaretelle's right eye has nearly gone blind on her, and we just can't do like we used to. I looked at Cletus to see if all this talk of illness and deterioration affected him the way it did me, but there was no fear or worry in his face. He looked perfectly serene. I couldn't understand that kind of peace. Already I was thinking I ought to get Mr. Underwood into Fayetteville to a chiropractor, and maybe there was some kind of medicine that might save Mrs. Underwood's right eye. Already I was making plans on how to keep them both from the grave. Mrs. Underwood spoke next, looking at me. I'm sorry about your loss, dear. It's so hard when the Lord takes a loved one away from us. Something caught in my throat all of a sudden, and I didn't try to answer her. 
I was feeling way too vulnerable in the face of such tenderness. I couldn't risk opening my mouth to speak of May. Somehow, the topic turned to lighter things, and Obe and Mr. Underwood talked of the weather and the new bridge being built down the road. Mr. Underwood said he had been a machinist in his day, holding up a hand with two fingers missing to prove it. I was afraid Ope might try to top this and start pulling down his pants to show where he'd been shot in the Navy in World War II. Japanese shrapnel had got him in the thigh. But he kept his head about him and his pants around him, and I breathed a sigh of relief. Mrs. Underwood brought us all some gingerbread cake and the best coffee I ever tasted. She tried to get me to drink a glass of milk. Couldn't get over a girl my age loving coffee so much. But Cletus told her that coffee had made me tough. And besides that, all writers needed something to see them through those long novels. And better it was coffee than Jim Beam whiskey. Mrs. Underwood's eyes crinkled in amusement as she refilled my cup. While we sat eating, I looked around the house as much as I could. It was neat as a pin. Simple pieces of furniture plain lamps, and only a few things on the walls. One of these was a picture of Mr. and Mrs. Underwood holding a small baby between them. It made me think about the difference between Cletus and me, about the way he could trust things to be all right, the way I worried about losing everything. Those two people in that picture had been holding Cletus between them, frail as they were, ever since Cletus took his first breath and Cletus just never expected them to let him fall. During our visit, Cletus didn't pull out his old suitcase, didn't entertain us with his usual stories of exaggeration and gossip. He sat listening and looking and smiling, and I wondered what he thought of us all. Maybe he really was wise in a different way. Maybe drowning was the best thing that ever happened to him. I just wished May had turned around and come back from heaven the way he did. Oban and I left the Underwood house full of warm cake and coffee. And something else. We couldn't say what, but the rest of the day had a nice quietness about it, and we laughed together about Obe's fear of telling the Underwoods the real truth. Not everybody's as free-minded as us, Summer, he said, and we began to gather up our things to take to Putnam County.